Hello and welcome to the Happy You're Here podcast. In this show, we share tools, techniques, and ideas about how we can live more fulfilled lives. In this episode, we have Ben Fitzgerald Fye. He is a pastor, a minister in the Presbyterian Church, and he happens to also be gay, openly gay. And this obviously, at certain points in his life, has brought a significant amount of controversy. And within the Presbyterian Church, we talk a little bit about how it became possible for this to happen. There's been a lot of people for a long time fighting for the rights of marginalized groups within the church to be accepted. Obviously, certain parts of the church have pushed back against that. Um, but basically, we get into all of that and a little bit more about kind of the responsibility of people that their religion says that they should be caring and accepting and compassionate towards others and what that means in actuality in modern society. It's a really interesting conversation and I'm happy to be sharing it with you. Happy you're here with me, Ben. Thank you for joining me. Do you want to start out by introducing yourself? Um, you know, what's your name, what you do, and kind of what you want to talk about? Um, so my fancy name is Reverend uh, Ben Fitzgerald Fye. My congregation calls me Pastor Ben. Um, I am a Presbyterian minister in the rural section of the Finger Lakes uh, in New York. Lots of sign and cows, which is nice. And I am an openly gay minister in the Presbyterian Church, uh, an openly gay Christian, which makes me a bit of a unicorn among my own people. So that is me in a nutshell. Cool. Yeah. I mean, when you reached out and suggest that you that we, we talk, I think that was interesting. I mean, especially you look at, I think you just shared on your Facebook a thing about Buttigieg. Yeah. Being like, you know, making it okay to be openly gay and Christian at the same time, which is interesting to me for such a what in some ways can be such an accepting community can also sometimes not be at all. What, what was your experience kind of, how did you as a gay man transition into feeling like you could become a, a minister and actually making that happen? Were there any kind of moral dilemmas, or like internal dilemmas or like actual roadblocks in your way of doing that? Yeah, so I was an atheist for most of my life. So I didn't actually become a Christian until I met my husband, uh, who is, <clears throat> I guess the best way to explain is he's a more evangelical Christian than I am. So he was like super Christian when I met him. <laughs> and uh, we started having conversations about, you know, what is the difference essentially between the people of the church uh, and the God of the church and the differences in who God loves versus who people say God loves. Mm -hmm. And so um, as we kept talking, um, I found myself suddenly praying, which I hadn't done for many years. Uh, and then I had what I believe to be an actual supernatural, which is hard to explain, except that you kind of feel filled with the Holy Spirit, I guess, as we would say now. Mm -hmm. And uh, after that, um, it, it sort of coincided with the idea that I believe that one of the responsibilities of those who experience that kind of conversion is that we become, uh, we become leaders of faith, essentially. We become proclaimers of what we have experienced and, and what is then accessible to other folks. So that's the easy sort of Christian timeline. The, uh, the gay timeline is a little more difficult. Uh, you know, I grew up in televangelist 
decade. Mm-hmm. So the only Christians I knew were Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell. So that screwed my whole life up. So, you know, they were sort of the, the genesis of atheism for me. Uh, my grandmother was an excommunicated Catholic because she married a president before it was cool. So, you know, I had all kinds of weird ideas about what religion was. And so when I sort of came out as a Christian, um, what you find is that in the, in the Christian community, and they come by this with absolute justification. They mistrust Christians, right? And, and they earned it. They earned it through suffering and torment and unbelievable suicide rates. They have every right to be skeptical of the Christian church. So when a gay person becomes a Christian, there is, there is this skepticism of sort of, are you like an Uncle Tom gay, right? Who is oh, yeah. just willing to, to bow down to the demands of the Christian church um, and preach the same sort of divisive stuff that they preach. Then that puts up a little bit of a wall so that you never have a healthy dialogue what it actually means to be gay and Christian. So most of my ministry work has been outside of my own community, um, except a few cases where I'm called to sort of come into a college classroom or another church to sort of speak as the token gay Christian about what it's like to be a gay minister, right? So, yeah. but my actual journey in ministry was my seminary had no issue with it. You know, my seminarian brothers and sisters had no issue with it. So I didn't experience any actual discrimination, except that I belonged to a presbytery, which is sort of like Presbyterian diocese, I guess is the best way to explain it. Um, that was pretty anti-gay. They had voted against marriage equality in the Presbyterian church, which had passed um, multiple times. I, was in, I came out in the presbytery essentially debating that issue. Um, so marriage was divisive to the church. Uh, Presbyterian churches have jumped ship as a result of the decision to affirm marriage. So yeah, there are complicated politics, you know, within these microcosms of the church, but in the larger sense of becoming a minister, nothing really stood in my way because the Presbyterian church makes it impossible in some ways for people to stand in your way for those reasons. Right. Because there's already in the Presbyterian church, a president for the precedent (laughs) for that. Right. Um, Yeah. I, I was, I did a little bit of research before this interview, which I almost never do, but um, I was interested to see how that, that worked. Um, and basically there's the groups the, that you're talking about that vote on kind of the local guidelines of how the church is run. And then also nationally, there's like a assembly of them. Um, and there was, I think it was 2008, 2009, where I was reading that the first Presbyterian minister uh was left the church and then was brought back into the church um because he left because he came out as gay and then he was allowed back in after they voted on it and everything um so is there that kind of precedent in other um denominations well um the presbyterian church is is fundamentally democratic so um, we were actually involved in creating the democratic system we live under as Americans, right? There were Presbyterians involved in that process. So we have a pretty democratic process of ratification and voting. And, you know, uh, Bishop Gene Robinson was the first gay minister, I think, uh, ordained in the Episcopal Church. He became the first gay bishop of that church. Uh, 
had to go through his bishop's ordination with Kevlar vests on because people were threatening his life. Um, so the the two of us have sort of been in lockstep a little bit in, in making these advances. Mm-hmm. As for other churches, uh, you know, I think not a lot of churches, you know, the Methodists are literally in the, in the throes of this debate right now. Um, it is splitting their church um, as harshly as it split the Presbyterian church. So there's a lot of division happening there. A lot of other churches are more congregational. So individual churches make their own choices. So I've even seen a Pentecostal churches, which is to me the most bizarre thing I think I've ever seen. But so it, 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 it's kind of a bottom up model in most cases. So congregations are usually well, well ahead of the denomination itself. Um, even in the Catholic Church, right, which which will never probably make a public affirmation of gay people um, or gay marriage. But I have, I, you know, Sean and I had a, a Catholic priest at our wedding reception, right? So clearly on a local level, lo- local level um, it isn't as big an issue as it is nationally in some cases. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I mean, the, the, yeah, idea, yeah, yeah. Of, the idea of precedent in the church is... Generally speaking, churches are about 25 years behind society. Well, I think that's true as far as any organization. It's, mm-hmm. I think people get really frustrated when they look at, you know, governments, non, big nonprofits, churches, everything that is a big organization uh, that has a lot of history. People look at that and they get frustrated because the kind of progress they want to see is not happening as quickly as we'd like to see it happen. Um, and I think this is especially true the bigger you get, the bigger, like the Catholic Church is massive. The, the United States government is massive. So like those places, uh, it's going to take the longest amount of time for any change to happen. And it's always going to lag behind whatever progress we're making as a society, which is unfortunate. But also we have to remember that like we look at things in terms of our lifetime. And if we can, you know, make the necessary steps to start redirecting these organizations by redirecting ourselves and our, and our, and like you said, from the bottom up, our communities, the change will happen. Uh, It just happens on a generational scale rather than our own lifetime, which can be frustrating, but you know, it's still promising. We've still made tons of progress over the course of history towards acceptance and um, you know, not killing each other all the time, which is great. <laughs> we still got a long way to go, but we're doing most mostly in spite of ourselves. But yeah, yeah. we yeah we've done that. Uh, yeah, and I, and I think you know part of this is you know when I'm preaching about these things, one of the things I like to remind people is that God thinks in generations, right? So mm-hmm. if you if you go through the biblical narrative, God doesn't do anything in 24 hours, basically. So most of God's work is done through these sort of generational shifts so you know the tribal generations as they move forward god you know the the concept of faith moves through these generations so the idea that a church um would shift you know sort of on a dime is actually not very biblical it's pretty unrealistic Uh, and when you get to churches that are large there's also the same issue of money um, as there is in politics, right? So um, the Presbyterian Church was terrified because the African churches were refusing to support us um, if we passed marriage equality, right? So we we took a hit from some of that support. We lost money 
as a result of that decision. So similarly, right now we're, we're deciding whether or not to divest from fossil fuels. Um, huge financial impacts. Uh, so we have to make the choice, does the, does the future of the planet outweigh the future of our, our bank accounts? Yeah, well, when you put it that way. No, but that's a serious, um, you know, a lot of organizations deal with that. You know, you're, the financials sometimes contradict the core philosophies of the organization. And that's kind of when you're put to the test of whether or not you actually stand behind the things that you're saying that you believe is what's the saying, putting your money where your mouth is, right? Um, yeah, we, we years ago, we divested from companies that built machinery used to destroy Palestinian settlements in Israel. So we divested from Caterpillar and some other, we were called Satan's church after we wow. made that decision because of, you know, we were considered anti-Israel because we were recognizing the suffering of the Palestinians. So, you know, we ordain and marry gay people. We clearly, I guess, don't support Israel. So the devil just loves Presbyterians. I don't know what to say. <laughs> Isn't it weird how other people that disagree with you will throw that around as if they have an actual say in that? Well, I mean, as a gay minister, I've been called a false prophet. I've been called you know, you name it. Um, I have been called an apostate, right, of Satan. I've been told I've been preaching a false gospel. You know, we deal with that stuff all the time. Women deal with it. So, you know, it's it's a pretty shady world of, yeah. of Christian politics sometimes. Do you ever feel doubt that, you know, you are, you know, preaching the right things or teaching the right things or understanding things in the right way? Yeah. I mean, if I didn't, I would be a bad Christian. So um, I, I feel it all the time in some ways. Mm -hmm. uh, it, when I was called to ministry, my first prayer to God was, you're out of your mind. Like, the, you, this is wrong. Like, you have made a mistake. Like, I cannot do this. So there's, I think ministers in most cases, right, every Sunday we stand in a pulpit and a bunch of people expect us to, to tell them something, right? Um, yeah. we are, we are supposed to be these kind of Bluetooth speakers yeah. for God, right? We, the word of God is, is translated through whatever we have done the follow the previous week. And that's terrifying because you're always asking, well, what if I'm wrong, right? What if I get to the pearly gates and, you know, St. Peter says you're full of shit. And so you have to go the other way, right? <laughs> you know, that's a possibility. Um, but, but let me say, um, I think fundamentally, uh, any minister preaching about anything understands that, that the, the entire story of the Christian narrative, the biblical story, is about expanding community from beginning to end. That is sort of the message. So at every turning point, it is, a, it is an extension of the faith to new groups of people. So if you are preaching the basic concepts of love, uh, loving neighbor, loving God. If you are preaching the Matthew 25 concept of, you know, when I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was thirsty, did you give me something to drink? When I was in prison, did you visit me? You know, these are the fundamental princi principles of the gospel. Um, they're the principles of the Old Testament with all of its nuttiness. And so if, if we can focus on those things, um, I don't know that you can be wrong uh, sure. in a fundamental way that would sure. somehow make you, you know, a, a false prophet apostate. So um, I think if we can focus on that stuff as, as the core, uh, I think we'll be okay. You know, we'll slip up frequently, but I think we'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, you know, an issue that anyone runs into that 
is either through their work or just kind of naturally garners any kind of audience. The difference, the difference is um, our credibility is questioned much more frequently. Um, When I walk in the door, yeah, when I walk in the door, I'm a white male. So I walk in the door with significant privilege in the church, right? Right. Um, The minute they find out I'm gay, you know, I lose it all. So my privilege goes out the door. Um, And I become questioned in the same, in a similar way that female ministers are questioned, Mm -hmm. right? We're not supposed to be there. So somebody, we have to justify why it's okay for us to be doing this. Yeah, I think that, you know, that experience is powerful to speaking to that message, though, you know, that gives you more understanding of what it's like to be those fringe communities that are not feeling accepted, which all across society is an important part of our growth as humans loving each other is how do we accept the people that we don't understand? And that goes inversely, too. How do we accept the people that that are, are... how do we have compassion for the people that are directing hatred towards us? Um, which I think that concept has been put on display for a lot of people because of the politics recently, how in your face that is. I mean, it's given a voice to a lot of hate and that hate has, it's not new. It's been there. It's just now it has a very loud uh, speaker. And I think the big challenge for people that consider themselves progressive, people that want to live lives full of love and compassion is how do you feel, show and live compassion towards people that are not providing you the same. It's easy to be compassionate and loving towards someone who's compassionate and loving back to you. you. The real challenge and the real, I think the real like beauty and it comes whenever you learn to express that same universal compassion to those that are not returning it. Yeah. And I mean, I think part of, you know, when we talk about the concept of, of progressive faith, right. Which is, by the way, we don't do very well among progressive political folk either. Um, You know, religion is not the highly esteemed amongst my liberal brothers and sisters either. Most of my friends are atheists actually. Um, So, you know, this idea of, has has it always been there? Yes. Um, the the problem I think is we now have given us given ourselves national permission um, to say and do things that at least we were ashamed of at one point, right? So yeah. uh, you could not march through the streets as white supremacists without some sense of shame, right? I mean, at least some healthy guilt. I don't know. Um, but the the problem is. We have to understand that there's a significant difference um, between loving loving an enemy, which is, you know, as a Christian, that's what we're called to do. Loving an enemy does not mean dismissing what they have done. So there is through, you know, God believes in justice. um, And sometimes God's justice is ugly, um, but it's God's justice, not ours. Our job, right, as the church, my, I believe the church ultimately is supposed to function as the consciousness of the nation. So there is a point at which the church is supposed to say, um, it is not okay to starve people. It is not okay to cage children. It is not okay um, to hate black people. It is not okay to hate gay people. It is not okay um, to stand up uh, and call other countries, you know, shithole countries. It is not okay um, to do all of these things, which sort of emanate from I don't know. Like, I don't know if it's just immorality unbound. I have no idea what's going on 
um, in our political sphere that has created this problem. But there is a model for this. You know, this was the Old Testament prophets. This is what they were speaking against every single day, right? The idea that these 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 kings, these rulers, um, mm-hmm. were, were just abusing the hell out of people. And so the prophet's message was, you need to stop this and recognize that God expects you to deliver justice to these people, or he's going to send Babylon to kick your ass. I mean, that's what God does in the Old Testament, right? So I often say, I know conservative folk who think that the president was appointed by God, right? So that may be, but if you if that's your if that's your model, read the Old Testament because when the when the person appointed by God makes God mad, God kicks their butt. That's what God does, right? So um, you know, if you're going to believe that Trump is divinely appointed, um, then I'm waiting for Babylon to come because I feel like we're a little off the track here. But God demands justice, right? That is that is the message from the beginning to the end of this thing, and. We are completely out of step with both a secular and a religious sense of justice right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we are feeding powerful beasts um, that I'm not sure uh, we can sort of push back once they have been unleashed in the way that they have. I, I don't, you know, I'm I'm not trying to be uh, uh, an alarmist, um, but I am terrified about where we are as a nation right now. I am disappointed. Um, in in Christian uh, systems and institutions that are supporting this kind of behavior, um, which is blasphemy and heresy as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I am shocked by the silence um, of the good people of this nation who are not rising up in absolute fury um, over what we're seeing. And, you know, the voices of the progressive uh, Christian left are trying to do it. Um, but we're so easily dismissed by too many groups of people. So I don't know if we're listening. You know, uh, look up Bishop William Barber. He's one of the greatest voices of the progressive Christian movement on the planet um, and is literally shouting, right, that this is a problem. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I think we are in a lot of ways in unique territory. Um, not necessarily, you know, we've seen hate, we have seen cruelty, we have seen violence before. But to see those things with as much power as they have and converging all together at once um, is terrifying. I mean, frankly, you know, Sean and I have had conversations about whether or not we can live in the United States. Yeah. I mean, I unfortunately, I don't think that it's really as unprecedented. It's unprecedented in our lifetimes, mm. potentially unprecedented in the last couple of generations. But I think it's got plenty of precedents in the history of humans. Um, you know, but look at—I mean, look at your precedents, though. You're probably thinking of some pretty extreme examples. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm not saying that it's not. You know, and and I, you know, I when I talk about compassion, I I don't necessarily even even mean you know saying oh that's okay you do what you do you know whatever like there's definitely an idea of having compassion with consequences. You can have compassion for somebody that, mm-hmm. you know, the life, the life circumstances that brought them to where they're at. And um, you can have compassion for the suffering that someone that is harboring that much hate must be going through while still wanting justice, while still understanding that you can't just, you know, allow someone's reason for having hate um, 
write off the consequences that they should feel and allow them to project that and damage other people. That's where it really comes into if they're harming other people, then and which obviously we have happening at a mass scale. And it's not even just, you know, the president, it's not even just these extreme movements. It's we have been causing such a, a large amount of suffering to other living beings, whether they're other human beings or the earth, uh, animals and, and our resources, the mother earth for so long now, unconsciously just doing it because that's the best way that we can continue to raise our standard of living with the metric of we want more and more and more and more. And I think that we just were doing it unskillfully as a species, as, as individuals, as a collective. And we've, we're now paying for those, that unskillful dealing out of suffering, whether it was us or it was our, you know, previous generations, we all are kind of bound by the same chain of consequences, whether you want to, however you want to conceptualize that whoever is dealing that justice, the justice comes. And the way that I see it is that it's to a point now that we can't ignore it. And that's kind of a curse and a blessing because it's, it's showing us the things that we've so easily swept under the rug and said, we'll deal with that later. We'll deal with that later. And it gets to the point now where it's like, okay, well, this is the time that we have to make decisions on these things. We have to decide as a collective what we are going to accept and what we are not. And also as individuals, what we are going to accept in our own actions, which is so much easier said than done, right? Like we can all talk this talk. Walking it is a totally different thing because there's so it's difficult in our everyday lives because of the way that our society has been set up. And we also have to have some self-compassion and understand that we're not going to, you know, be perfect human beings all the time. We're inherently flawed. It's part of our build, right? Whether you believe that through... Um, the conceptualization of, of Christianity, which if I'm not wrong, that's a pretty core part of that is that humans are inherently flawed. Um, and, but every religion has that aspect. Every, if you look at any modern secular movements, we also should accept the fact that we are not perfect creatures. We are not perfect beings. We have to have some self-compassion that, you know, we're not going to solve all the world's problems in one day, but like you said, it's, it's, it's important that we voice our desire for justice um, and kind of draw this, our, our line in the sand of where we stand because other people are watching, especially if you're a person of privilege. Other people are definitely watching. And, you know, I'm a straight, white, <laughs> cisgendered male in America. I'm pretty much as privileged as it gets. So I'm very conscious of the... You should be ashamed of yourself for those things. <laughs> <laughs> and I see, I understand that, 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 that having that privilege does not mean that, you know, I think a lot of right. white males don't understand. They think, oh, you're trying to tell me I should be ashamed of being who I am. And that's totally not what the concept of privilege is, is talking about. It's that recognizing how easy, how much easier things are for someone like me and even someone like you, just because of you can walk in a room and you can hide at least, which is horrible that you have to do that, but you can hide the things that make you. Um, oh, yeah. I'm a white male Christian. I mean, yeah, I'm a power broker. right? <laughs> but so it, it's our responsibility then to use that privilege in a way that helps empower and 
I think we have to be careful about, you know, the whole white savior, <laughs> which I use in a broad term, not just with race, but, um, <laughs> but it's, it's important that, you know, it, when we, when we have this ability to command the respect of other people in our groups, um, we take that responsibility seriously, uh, and are not afraid to speak up whenever we see injustice happening because people that look like us will listen to us more likely than they will listen to someone that looks like the person they're causing suffering for. Well, I think, you know, you made an important point and that is obviously, um, this is not necessarily unprecedented. Um, historically the, the precedent is pretty frightening because it's happened, you know, during incredible moments of just horror. But the other thing that I think worries me is there is this sense that people have that, well, this is just, it's supposed to be right. Mm -hmm. So people are just violent. I mean, it's just what we do. Um, we know statistically, right. Um, that violence varies from place to place, um, that, you know, people are just, you know, this is what we do and blah, blah, blah. And, and it, that, that's fundamentally not true. And I mean, whether you're, whether you're a sort of non-religious humanist, right. Who, who just thinks about yourself in terms of your humanity, um, or if you are Christian as I am, you know, the, the first moment of your creation was God breathing life into you in this very peaceful, very intimate, very sort of unviolent moment, right? So it is not supposed to be this way. I mean, fundamentally, this is not how we're supposed to be. Um, and we can do better. Um, and I just, I would love to just hear the voices of people who believe fundamentally that we are better than this, um, not just in America. Yeah worldwide, right? We are just better than this. And it, it, it scares me sometimes that I think, and I felt this too, we get a little stunned. Um, you know, I, I follow gun violence pretty closely. It's one of the issues I care pretty deeply about. The number of shootings that happen, um, it, it reaches a point where, you know, on Sunday mornings, when we do our prayers of the people, I'm, I'm saying to the congregation, uh, yeah, I want to lift up prayers for these folks, but I am so sick and tired of praying about this, right? Um, you know, this is not okay. Can we just stop it? Um, so, you know, there is that sort of, that sort of sense of, of strange, um, I don't want to call it apathy because I think that's nastier. Um, but even, you know, we talk about compassion. My fundamental belief is that there's nothing more powerful in the world than empathy. So the idea that we have shared experience, identical experience or not, doesn't matter. All of us, even cis, white, straight men, right, know what it's like to suffer in some way. Yeah. Um, you know, you if you walk into a place that is predominantly African-American, you are a minority, right? So you have a little bit of that experience. Um, little kids, right, don't necessarily experience death, but they've lost a goldfish. I mean, that's a shared experience, right? It's the idea that we have, we have felt something similar. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I have felt hate. I mean, I'm not going to deny the fact that I have been so angry at another group of people that I have felt like I wanted to, you know, smite them. You know, we've all felt yeah. that. So I think the problem we have is that if we're not showing empathy, right, um, what's left, it's, it's sociopathy, right? It's dangerous psychosis um, if we are not sort of giving in to the more empathetic side of ourselves. So um, I don't know what's going on. I mean, well, I do. I mean, I see I'm on Facebook, right? I see what's happening. So, you know, there, there's, a, there's a fundamental lack of, of empathy, um, which I hope doesn't indicate that we're all a bunch of sociopaths, but I think more, it just indicates that 
we have we have lost some kind of personal connection that allows us to practice empathy. Um, yeah. So it's just yeah. too easy to abuse each other. Yeah, I think that you know so much of that comes from our we've we've in many ways in modern society distanced ourselves from a sense of community, which then diminishes our sense of empathy. Sure. Um, and that is dangerous, not only for the way that we treat others, but for our internal suffering too. We are social beings. We're wired as individuals, spirits to connect with one another. And like you said, I don't buy the whole that we're inherently violent and we inherently want to kill each other. I think that that comes from our darkest places. It comes from fear. It comes from, um, not understanding and not, it's the lack of empathy, you know, where, when we are filled with empathy and we are filled with faith that things are going to work out the way that they are going, like basically the opposite of fear. That's a complicated emotion, I think, to describe necessarily, but faith and, or hope, I think, are kind of the opposites of fear. Um, then we are not violent. We are compassionate. We can build amazing, wonderful things, which I think our modern society has seen in a lot of ways us doing that just we're not there yet. <laughs> we have so much more growth to do. We can't sit on our laurels and say, well, it'll all work itself out because humans have fought with love and with conviction to get us to the place that we're at now. Give me think of an interesting idea. And, you know, uh, I often say the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. And I think part of the problem is that we are living in a world of, of people who are certain, right, that they are mm. right. They are certain uh, that what they believe is fundamentally true, and they are certain that you or I are wrong, right? And not just wrong, we're wrong in a way that makes us enemies. So, yeah. you know, we, we have a sort of epidemic of certainty. Um, and, and if you want to talk about, you know, Christians, we hold up the idea of original sin, right? Um, the problem is most Christians don't really know what that means, um, and we don't really know what that is. So, um, you know, first of all, it has nothing to do with human sexuality. That's nonsense. Um, secondly, when, when the apple was plucked from the tree, um, it wasn't because human beings wanted to just be smart, right? So it wasn't God wanted us dumb and we wanted to be smart. We wanted to know as much as God knows, right? So the first sin was idolatry. It's the sin that is spoken of repeatedly as the single worst sin you can possibly commit from Old Testament to New Testament. So what we're seeing, if, if I'm going to talk in purely Christian terms, mm -hmm. we're seeing idolatries, right? Idolatries of money, idolatries of power, the most common that there is. The church, in many senses, has made power an idol to the point that we are being permissive about a bunch of stuff that's really awful. Um, you know, we are idolizing ourselves, right? American exceptionalism is an idolatry of the self, right? So, yeah. um, so I don't know where we go with that because it just seems like there's a great big giant bubble of sin everywhere. But, um, you know, we have to stop that. Something, something more substantial um, in my case, you know, God, you know, something has to be bigger uh, than all the money and the power and the and the political favor and, you know, whatever else, even just being popular has become an idol, right? Um, yeah. Everybody wants to have the most Instagram yeah. and everybody wants to, you know, so we are idolaters, I guess is what I'm saying. And God help us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I, I want to step back a little bit real quick. When we were talking about 
that we are kind of separated from this idea of empathy. Um, I was just wondering if you had any ideas about how we can help as individuals, not only like, what are your ideas about how we can develop stronger empathy in ourselves, but also um, how can we inspire stronger empathy in other people? So, yeah, I I mean, from, from a religious point of view, what I tell folks frequently is when you look into the face of another human being, um, you are looking into the face of God, right? Um, Each of you bears the same image. Each of you carries the same spirit. Each of you has the breath of life inside of you given to you by this divine creator. So when you are looking at another human being, you are looking essentially at yourself. So, you know, you cannot hate something so fundamentally that is you. Um, I hope not. I mean, if you can, then there are therapists that deal with that. Um, But you have to understand, even taking it beyond the religious, there is something, right, that fundamentally connects us together as the creatures that we are. So the face of the person you are looking at is your face, right? Um, Their experience is your experience. We are designed as communal creatures. We are designed to be connected to one another, whether that's a religious idea or a secular idea, we are fundamentally designed for connection, right? So you look at another human being, no matter what color they are, what their identity is, what, you know, what their deal is, they're you, right? They, you are having that experience too. You cannot watch the world and pretend that it's not happening to you because it is, because every single other creature on this planet is either under your stewardship or is your brother or sibling of some kind, your sister, your brother, your mother, whatever you want to say, you know, we are fundamentally connected. Empathy, I think, um, I hope, begins with the recognition of that fundamental idea that we are built to be connected to one another. Um, Even at our worst, um, you know, we still own each other as as a as a thing right as a collective idea so empathy then is is sort of leaning into the idea that you know what craig i don't understand what it's like to be a straight white cisgender male right i don't i don't get it i don't understand what your whole deal is i don't understand why you like the stuff you like um you know i don't get what you're into (laughs) but you know uh, i am a white male Right. So we do share some level of experience. Um, and, you know, each of us carries points of privilege. Um, so there isn't a human being, I, I don't think, that we can't in some way relate to in some way. Right. Um, we have this discussion between the gay community and the black community. A lot of people get upset about it. Right. That, that the gay community can understand the experience of being marginalized and abused. Um, Some folks don't like that comparison, right? They think we're totally different. But you show me, show me a human being that does not understand suffering, does not understand sickness, does not understand sorrow, does not understand violence or war or or anger, right? Um, And and we'd be looking at a statue. I mean, we all know these things. So I believe that you know it sounds it sounds like one of those horrible um, cliche political lines they use, but I do fundamentally believe that what what brings us together is significant and bigger than what divides us. The problem is that we live in a world that sensationalizes the things that divide us. So 
you know, we're, we're no longer just Republican and Democrat. It's, you know, we're at war with each other. And that, that's a wedge in our ability to empathize with one another. We live in the world of I'm right, you're wrong, please shut up, right? I don't want to hear any other opinions. So that's a long answer to a, a question that I don't know we can answer. But we are each other. I mean, I think is where, where I end up. Yeah, yeah I, I, I believe that, you know, it's a lot of times the best that we can do is to live our own lives through as close to what our idealized self can be. Because when we interact with other people, if we show that radical empathy, I've experienced it living in Dubois, Pennsylvania, showing, you know, this <clears throat> empathy and ability to connect with people that I fundamentally disagree with everything that they believe creates this bridge. And then you can see the way that that changes a person because a lot of times, a lot of times the, the antithesis of the things that I believe are usually brought about by a feeling of disconnection and a feeling of this individualism that, and it's not necessarily by choice. A lot of times it's, you know, you've been raised in a environment that was from an early age teaches you that you are not safe. You have to live in fear of the other, which is unfortunate, you know, but that is something that happens to a lot of people in childhood for a multitude of different reasons. But when that happens, when you are able to express empathy and show someone that you see them, especially in a society where we're trying to, at a lot of times, dismiss people's personhood just because of their ideologies or the way they look or whatever. Everyone is doing it. All sides of everything are trying to dismiss other people's personhood. And seeing that on an individual level is really inspiring to continue to try to become a better version of, of yourself because then it, it continues to perpetuate this ripple effect, which like, I don't know if that has an effect on the greater, you know, size of humanity. I'd like to believe it does because it's really all that I can do. So I think that a lot of people, it's, it's looking at yourself and saying, how can I live by these ideals better? How can I live out the core philosophies of whatever it is that I believe, whether it's Christianity or something else, but having, first of all, having some kind of core philosophies is important. Mm. And then choosing to try to embody those in as many interactions as possible with the self-compassion to know that you will not always live that way. You will make mistakes. You will, you know, dismiss someone. You will show moments of anger towards people. That's natural to, to do that because we're not ever going to be perfect and there's a beauty in that because that means there's always growth. There's always more we can work on. There's always something to work towards. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, as, as you were saying that I was kind of thinking about, I, I, ha I happen to believe that you cannot hate that, which, you know, so, um, you know, and I have found this in my own experience. I mean, the reason, part of the reason I'm a Christian today is that I fell in love with one. So it was hard for me to hate all the Christians. Right. Um, so then I had to listen. Um, and then listening opens up the heart and opens up the mind, and then suddenly transformation happens. So I have been friends with uh, conservative Christians who don't think I should exist in nature, right? Some of them changed their views after getting to know me, or some of them, you know, warmed up to the concept of marriage when they realized that Sean and I are as boring as they are. Um, <laughs> so, you know, 
there is a transformative reality to being in relationship. And I, I'm like you, like I, I, I have to believe that the effects of that are bigger than just two people. Um, I don't know why we have sacrificed that to something nefarious or disconnecting. I don't know. Um, maybe we're, you know, I think we're fun. I think a lot of folks are afraid um, to be challenged yeah. since they have been raised to fear the other. You know, we see this with, you know, the, the immigrant crisis is, I really think the most blaring example of this idea of, that we can dehumanize that, which we don't have to encounter, right? Um, so we can speak of groups as groups and not as human beings. Um, and then suddenly it's easy to, you know, send people to gas chambers and cage children and do all kinds of horrible things. So, yes. I think the reality is that uh, people like you um, are going to have to be in relationship with one person at a time um, with the hope that somehow we model, um, you know, some level of, of empathetic sort of affirmation or acceptance of one another. I think we have to get rid of the idea that we need to be tolerant of each other. I mean, you know, the cliche is you tolerate the flu. You don't tolerate people. Right. So um, tolerance is not enough. I mean, you know, we have to fundamentally understand that we are each other um, and that that relationship is the is is the sort of genesis of our transformation into a better, nicer people. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, Ben, so much. Is there anything else you'd like to leave us with? Um, I don't know. Just be nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's an important message. <laughs> right. Just get a grip on yourselves. Let's be nice to each other. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. Is there anywhere um, that you'd like people, if they were interested in connecting with you, that they could do that? Well, clearly I'm a social media addict, as is everybody. So I am on all social medias. Uh, my church website and sermons are at uh, Scipioville, S-C-I-P-I-O-V-I-L-L-E, church.org. I will put that in the show notes so people don't have to try to spell that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's weird. So, yeah, and I'm happy to talk to anyone. Um, you know, I think minister or not minister, you know, we're just people. And uh, thank you for having a conversation with a gay minister that wasn't all about being a gay minister. That was fun. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Happy You Are Here podcast. We have one more episode this season, and then we're going to be taking a little bit of a break. I have a lot on the plate for next season. Really going to, I've really enjoyed this season, stepping it up with the interviews, doing more interviews, making them more varied and diverse. And next season, we're going bigger. We're going to try to get some bigger names. We already are talking to some people that you might recognize onto the podcast and continue to grow this. It's been growing ever since we started and I'm really happy that everyone has been enjoying the show and the people have found this useful. It's really awesome uh, when people tag us on Facebook that a certain episode has resonated with them. The cool thing is with podcasts is you don't have to give up and miss an episode uh, if you didn't get it when it first came out. Just the other day, someone posted something that was like maybe the third or fourth episode that I had posted that they had just listened to and it resonated with them. They made a Facebook post about it and how that helped them and and shared that with the people in uh, their little network. And I think that's really awesome. I think that even myself, I go back and listen to old episodes of this show because they can be really helpful. So 
If you haven't listened to all the episodes of the show yet, feel free to jump back and listen to some more of them. I think you'll get a lot out of it if you've enjoyed any of these episodes. That's all. Thank you for listening. I'm happy you're here. See you in the season finale. Bye.